Leaving home. Hello, you're listening to Switchboard, a new radio show from Varsity on Cam FM 97.2. My name's Eddie, and for our first show, as Caroline just said, we'll be gathering three stories together, all about leaving home. And I'm joined in the studio by Caroline Thornham, and of course, as well, our fantastic producer, Raphael Korber-Hoffman, and a very, very, very special guest, um, who is called Farage. Farage, would you like to say a little, a few words? Farage, just uh, introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Hi, it's me, Farage Al Nasser. I'm from Syria, Aleppo. Fantastic. And we'll be speaking to you a little bit later in the program. Okay. Um, maybe I should say a few words about what what Switchboard is. It's a it's a brand new radio show where each week we aim to bring you interesting true stories from people across Cambridge. And um, well, we have a fascinating packed show today. Um, and our first story, uh, it was me and Blanca Schofield Legorboro who went along and spoke to a first year modern languages student called Kendall. Um, and we, he's Kurdish. Um, he was born in Sweden uh, and is studying in Cambridge now. And um, this is what he had to tell us. So this was around the time of uh, the September coup. It was a military coup in around the 1980s. And that was sort of when anti-Kurdish sentiment reached its peak. Um, it's when a lot of people were thrown into prison for their political beliefs. And the prisons were notorious for torture and human rights abuses. So I'm Kendall, a first year MML student at Jesus. I was born in Stockholm and then we moved to England when I was one year old. Whilst I live in Essex, I'm from Sweden and Kurdistan, which is, I guess, why my story is relevant today. The only way that people felt that they could respond was through political action, be it violent or non-violent. So my mum and her older sister, when they were around 14 and 16, they were flying the Kurdish flag, which got them arrested because it was seen as a political flag rather than a national one, and not even that it was seen as a terrorist flag. So they were arrested for that, which obviously created a lot of fear. Luckily, they had a family friend who was a lawyer, which was very lucky just because they grew up in these very rural villages where, like, my mum's generation was the first to be educated. Her and her sister managed to get out on a technicality, which was that the police officer reported the colour of the flag the wrong way round. So essentially his eyewitness account was accurate, but if he hadn't have, you know, messed up this tiny detail, I wouldn't be where I am now. As soon as she got out of jail where they'd been for a few days, their father was just, he was just adamant on getting them out as soon as possible. So essentially he had to bribe the police to get them passports. And from there they went straight to Sweden, which was known at the time for his open refugee policy. So still to this day, there's a very strong Kurdish community and an active Kurdish community at that. And so they went there to their brother because it wasn't safe for them to be at home anymore. And I don't think they wanted to leave, but they had no choice. It was either that or... Because, of course, after that, they were they would have always been um, sort of suspects. They would have always been watched. Any full step would have gotten them in trouble. So it was there they had to go to Sweden and start their new lives. 14 is so young. Does that mean your mum went to school in Sweden as well? Uh, yeah, so she did 
or redid sixth form in Sweden and it was just very intense like when she says what she did I have no idea how she did it she she sort of learned Swedish learned everything in Swedish and then was also very politically active and I think she worked like part-time but a lot as a cleaner as well almost all the way through university and it's just so strange to think how I've grown like even now how I'm living and how she supported herself it's just crazy to think sort of how distinct our lives are I feel like how I talk about how alienating it can be for me for her it must have been tenfold but at the same time she it was essentially like a community a home away from home it was she would have been the outlier in how much she engaged with Sweden in that you could just sort of exist in this Kurdish circle which I suppose is a good thing if you've been forcefully displaced. And how often do you go back to like Kurdistan or Turkey? Um, It used to be once or twice a year although I haven't been going that recently I guess partly just because life's gotten so much busier since I was 14 and also the political situation there is getting more unstable. Like, it's still safe to go, but it's always something that you will have in the back of your mind if you're ever there. What do you mean? As in, yeah, that it could become violent, or the violence that is there might end up reaching you. So, sort of streets that I've been around for years are now covered in debris, and they've been bombed. There's been guerrilla versus state fighting, so... It's between the Turkish state and um, PKK fighters, now disbanded and under a different name, but essentially the same group, which is the Kurdish Workers' Party. And um, it's really sort of a reaction to the actions of the Turkish state. And I think it has been exacerbated with the Syrian civil war. So sort of insurrection is treated with this aggressive force and that sort of takes place on the streets where the civilians are the ones who suffer the most. The vast majority of my mum and dad's family still live there and I mean they're quite safe but for example some areas that they work in they can't go to and um, in the failed coup a few years ago anyone who worked for the state lost their job if they were believed to be part of the coup. So I had, my uncle was a teacher and he lost his job and then they tried to replace, um, displace him to a different city, which is quite known for its anti-Kurdish racism. Um, Luckily he was able to switch that to a closer one, but it was just the idea of, for the very sake of being Kurdish, he lost his job and was going to be moved uh, hundreds of kilometres away from his family. And it's just something that I'm currently not dealing with but obviously someone who's been so close to me is, and there's just such a great disparity between how things are going right now that it can feel quite strange at times. Especially I feel like here I've probably been more out of touch with home than I ever have been, and it's just... So when... I'm sort of always asking myself, so when am I going to come back down? When am I going to, you know, pop the bubble and go back to who and where I'm from? And how does that make you feel kind of on an emotional level? I think probably guilty would be the best feeling because it's almost as if I'm so far away here in England that I'm so alienated from it that it's Mm. something that I don't, I don't, I'm not thinking about. It's something that I have to consciously remember and it's as if 
not as if I've betrayed, but as if I'm sort of just moving away, as if I'm able to say I'm Kurdish, but then not be able to take on the struggle that so much of my family has got. I I don't think it's about the feeling of in-betweenness going as more accepting it, and like now I don't really have a problem with it. Perhaps it's because I've managed to assimilate to England, but it's I like the idea that I'm not too tied to one place, especially with MML. It's sort of, I don't have anything against moving my life away to somewhere else because it's happened before and my family's done it. Also just the idea of being able to like have a home culture and identity as well as one here it's I feel lucky in that sense that was Kendall a modern languages student catching up with Eddie and Blanca you are listening to Switchboard the new show on CAMFM in conjunction with Varsity connecting you with stories from around Cambridge up next we've got a story from Daisy another modern languages student who caught up with Eddie and I on what she got up to on her year abroad and how it took a little bit of an unconventional turn. So what was I expecting out of my year abroad? I was expecting to get pretty good at Russian. That was the main thing. I also remember a few weeks before it was time to move to Moscow, just thinking, God, I do not want to move to Russia. I don't want to go somewhere that's cold. My family's here, my mum's here, I won't know anyone there. For like a really long time, it was really horrible. Like really horrible things also happened. Like, but I guess that's what happens when you move abroad and you have to grow up. I guess. But then I met some people and I met a very lovely man who became my husband in the end. That is usually the shocker. It's like I became the person who got married on their year abroad. It makes more sense if you actually hear why did it. And, for what reasons. So I met him a while ago, sort of a year ago now, and we got on great, obviously, famously, um, felt very much in love, and we were thinking, how on earth are we going to stay together? Because I guess you're probably aware that visa and migration laws to the UK are some of the strictest in the world. And to Russia, they're also pretty damn difficult as well. So I came up with this idea. I was like, oh, why don't we just get married? It was a bit of a joke. And you kind of leapt on it because you thought it was kind of quite funny. But then after a while, it did get pretty serious. And we thought, like, how are we even going to stay together? Like, considering that the US and the UK just left, right and centre refuse Russians even holiday visas. So that's where it kind of started. On the other side, I think when you get when you live in somewhere that's so, so different, so I was living in a place called Nizhny Novgorod, and I was the only English person in a city of 1.5 million. And I think when you spend 10 months away from your family, from everyone you know, it's quite difficult not to not to pick up the mentality of the people you're living with. So for all of my friends who were above 20, 21, they were married. Here it seems to be in popular culture and in whatever, in how much it costs also to just be a massive deal. But for them, it's like, it's a party. I think we spent about 300 quid on the whole thing. So I think there is that sort of, being quite open, my eyes open to this like very different cultural idea of, well, it's not that 
bigger deal, guys. Like, and there's just loads of people being like, well, if you love someone, you may as well get married. You get tax breaks. Um, it's pretty nice. It costs about five pounds at the registry office. Like, so many people I knew were married and never had a wedding. They just were like, oh, we're in it because it's like a nice cultural thing to do. And also their culture of divorce is also not that big a deal. It's kind of like, oh, if it's mutual, it takes five minutes. Um, so I think a combination of those things and also being ridiculously in love with somebody to a point that I didn't think was actually possible because I'd had relationships before, but I'd never had something like this. I've never been happier. And people kind of really doubted what's it going to be like when he comes here and he came here and it's fine. Met my family. I mean... So the whole marriage thing was a bit dodgy because I, I kind of, we decided to like actually do it and it gave us a week and I said, and my parents were like, you're absolutely not doing that. And then kind of just took it as a joke. And then I came home and I was like, yeah, we did. And they were like, you, what? Like, this is, how could you do such a thing? This is awful. Like, why would you do something like that to us? Um, as if I'd done it to, like, break up the family or something like that. I was being very gung-ho about it, but I'll tell you what, I was freaking out for, like, weeks before and weeks afterwards. Um, and it's been a very tricky story in general. Um, Are your parents coming around to it then now, having, having met him and stuff? Yeah, well, my dad really likes him. He thinks he's really sick. Whereas my mum's just like... She's like, yeah, he's nice, he makes you happy, blah, blah, blah. And she, like, will sometimes, like, nah. I've heard her remark to the people, like, oh, yeah, this is the happiest I've ever seen Daisy, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, it seems like she is coming round to it. But I think, as every parent will know, like, it's that feeling of having your child stolen away from you, which they were probably quite uncomfortable with. His name's Vladimir, um, but I call him Vov. That's the one. He's very funny. He, um... I met him when he was working as a, what do you call it, a security guard at a club. And then um, they kind of took off from there. He was, uh, what's quite nice about him is that he's um, very, very real, authentic. I think I really sort of thought, oh, this one's the one, when we'd had an argument. And his way of making it up wasn't being like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, or like, oh, like, I'll get you some flowers. His idea of making it up to me was like oh why don't we just like hitchhike St. Petersburg like it'd be really cool and it just like what ensued was like a really like grueling <laughs> depressing horrific journey like for a day and a half like in like cars and whatever which way not sleeping at all and just coming out the end being very smelly and very in love with each other just because it was just I don't know if you do stuff like that with somebody and you can bear them and you don't if I have a problem with it, I think they're probably the one for you. Um, that I was just a bit nervous to talk about this. Um, <laughs> I think I've gotten quite a lot of negative attention from this. And I just wanted, I don't know, I, I, it, it felt like a bit, a lot of people were talking about me behind my back. So I think it is quite nice to be able to say like what actually happened and I guess that people don't think I'm doing this for a joke or that I was completely mad. It did start off as a jokey idea, but I can assure you that was not how it ended up. <laughs> yeah. That was Daisy speaking to me and Caroline earlier in the week, and we just had a, an email in from Peter saying he's loving the show. So thanks very much to Peter. And you can get in touch. Uh, you can send us an email anytime now or during the week 
and the email address is varsity at, it's sorry it's switchboard at varsity.co.uk send us any tips reactions leads interesting stories that you might have and we'll get back in touch with you Earlier this week, uh, Eddie and I had the great pleasure of meeting with Professor Simon Goldhill, who uh, has been hosting Farage in his home for the past uh, 18 months. And uh, here's what he had to say. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Someone turned up at my wife's synagogue and said, does anyone have a spare room? Can you take a Syrian refugee? Mm. And we said, yeah, all right. That was it. That was the level okay. of the discussion. I mean, I'm sure it should yeah. have involved a much bigger sort of heart search, but right. actually doing the right thing doesn't mm. take much time. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, so you just do it. And yeah. How uh, long three, ago was that? That was, oh gosh, 18 months ago by now, or something like that. And then uh, three weeks later, we had a, a, a visit from the charity to check that we were not axe murderers and mm. actually did have a room. And then a couple of weeks after that, Farage turned up for a day, we thought, to check us out. And in fact, he's been there since. Was there a period of kind of adjustment for you and your family as well as for Farage, obviously? Yeah, obviously bigger for Farage mm-hmm. in the sense that he uh, comes from a background that is uh, completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember, he gave up his education at age 15. and He'd only been educated in, only, he'd been educated in a madrasa beforehand, mm-hmm. so a strict religious education. Right. It's been rather rather interesting. I mean, he comes to synagogue with us on a, on a, on a Saturday. It's like having an instant adolescent son. He comes in and says, I'm sorry, I'm late. I said, yeah. it doesn't matter, you're Muslim. You can be late. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <Yeah>. And, <laughs> and he Is plays that- with the kids, and the kids do reading with him, and he gets on very well. He helps the rabbi with his with babysitting. He's like, so, and, Thompson, and he's fitted in absolutely fine, and he's very open-minded, and people have been very friendly. And it's just, you know, everybody is always constantly encouraging you to be tribal. And actually getting on with people is a much better thing to do. So yeah. it's not been a problem for us in that sense. And, you know, we do Friday night and Sabbath yeah. and all the rest of it. But he just fits in with that. He's extremely open-minded. And when it's uh, Ramadan and he's fasting, we don't sort of wave chicken legs in his face or anything. And, you know, we, yeah. we respect that. And he gets up at you know, four, three in the morning to eat. And that's fine. And you know, So, yeah, we just... Just get on with it, really. And I was wondering, from your, <laughs> from your point of view, um, mm. personally, mm. how has it has this experience of hosting Farage has it affected the way that you think about the Syrian migrant crisis or the refugee crisis in general? Mm-hmm. I think what I found most interesting is how you deal with a sense of despair, how you deal with a sense of deracination, and how you deal with the way that some people behave very badly. I'd been more upset by the way people in Huddersfield, when he, where the first place he went when he, when he got asylum, tried to really abuse him in terms of um, offering him work, but then not paying him, or trying to make him work for 50p a day. You know, that way in which certain bits of the community tried to turn him into slave labour. And I think my sense of government policy that you take people into this country, it's fantastic, he got asylum, thrilled with that, and that's been a very good move. But then there's no backup, there's no support, and it's almost guaranteeing that you produce an underclass 
of people with no education and no ability to contribute to society. And he wants to contribute. He wants to get an education. And he's lucky that he's with us. And you know, thank God we can afford to put him into in, into education. He can get. Yeah, you know, he's not going to just go off and get a low level job. He can get an education and do something that's capable. He's, he's most capable of. But the short sightedness and the economic naivety of bringing in people and giving them nothing is to me a real shock and I think that's really sharpened my view of that uh, I think the encouragement from certain sectors such as the Daily Mail and Daily Express and some bits of the media towards violent tribalism is as horrible now as it was in the 30s and it's a form it's an obscenity it really is horrible and you know opening your house to somebody is not the most terrible thing to do it's, it's not, you know, I'm sure there may be examples of things where they go wrong for other people, but we know three or four families who've followed us now in Cambridge who've taken people and it's all been successful. So, you know, I, I, they've all been you know, good relationships. And if you don't mind me being slightly homiletic, it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, it's as if you've saved the whole world. Okay, so, you know, you, yeah, you can't, I'm, I'm not going to change government policy, but I can actually change somebody's life. And if more people did that, if you think of the number of people who have kids who've left home and they're still in their house and they have a spare room, yeah. why aren't they helping? Cambridge is fantastic. It's a, it's a multicultural community. It's used to people of different cultures coming in. They're, you know, of course, we all grumble about students. Ha. And of course, we, you know, I mean, but it's so absolutely part of Cambridge life. And he's been treated with extraordinary respect and friendship by almost everybody he's met here. Uh, I've been pretty impressed I mean, the Orthodox Jewish community, absolutely fine. They ask him, they take him out for coffee. People sit and read with him to help his English. And that's just, you know, just people volunteering. They say, oh, we just met him, we like him. Can we help? You know, and the same, pretty well across the board. He meets people on the street and they're friendly to him. So Cambridge has been fantastic. Yeah. But basically, I think what most people need is a calm, loving environment. And that's what we provide. And that's all. It's not hard. That was Professor Simon Goldhill from King's College, Cambridge speaking to me and Raphael about Farage. And Farage, as you will have known if you've been listening since the beginning of the programme, is here with us. Farage, you're 22. You're from Syria. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you respond to what you just heard Simon saying there. Well, (laughs) I don't know what I have to say because Simon Goldfield is like, he's an amazing man. I mean, he's opened the door for me to have a new life in Cambridge. When I was in Huddersfield, it was like no place to stay after I was living actually in a hostel there and then I, I'm allowed to stay just for one year and then what I have, where I have to go where I have, what I have to do and I want to go on education or to work yeah so lots of things to do like he didn't know what you have to do and then uh, just to find a place to stay with them and uh, very welcoming they are really lovely and his wife Shoshana she's amazing I mean they are incredibly incredibly amazing and his daughter Sarah as well like um, we got really on well and uh, they helped me for everything like Farage don't worry you are safe with us you mm. can you can continue on education they help me and they support me and uh, yeah they are really lovely yeah because you had quite an interrupted education didn't you yes yeah um, 
when I was 15, so I left Syria uh, to Egypt uh, with my parents and then I left to Turkey by myself when I was 17. So when I was 15, I stopped my education because the war and I went to Tur uh, Egypt, I couldn't start, I couldn't stay there and I have sort of problem with my family. And then I have to leave to Turkey when I was 17. It's like it was <laughs> really dangerous for me and scary because you go into place, you don't know where are you going. And it's like I have to and uh, different language, different culture, everything is different. And I tried to study there and I couldn't. Yeah. And I was working illegally there for two years, like. <laughs> really mess but and then i decided to go to europe so um i went through europe from turkey to greece macedonia serbia hungary <laughs> hungary which is really worst place uh, sorry to say that but why what happened what happened to you in well actually when it, when i was walking there and and it's really difficult to walk by the in in the forest place where it's like really, really dangerous people there and like a uh, dangerous place actually by myself and then I and when I uh, arrived to Hungary and the police they took me to prison and f for 10 days without reason yeah and they treat me like as an animal yeah and uh, after then 10 days we went to the, to the court and the judge sa she said we c because we are really love uh, refugees and we want to help them so i'm not going to leave you in the prison for more for three months so you have to b go back to serbia again i said if you really like refugees or want to help refugees so just let me go <laughs> to continue my journey and i don't want to stay in hungary and they just sent me back to uh, to serbia again and i tried three times and uh, finally <laughs> i crossed uh Hungary to Austria and Germany, France. So I stayed in France like almost a uh, month there in Dunkirk in France and it was really scary place to stay there like uh, because a lot of dangerous people there so mm -hmm. like a mafia so the, if you mm -hmm. stay there you don't know what's going on there yeah and uh, people sh uh, fighting with police and I was really scared there I don't know what I have to do how I can go to England but I was actually lucky to to get to England. Uh, one day, I saw. I'm sorry. We're we're we're, we're yeah. I'm really rude. We're running out of time. We have 30 oh, seconds sorry. left. Um, it's very. It's, you know, it's a it's a shame that we've got such little time. Tell us a, a few little things about your reflections on Cambridge and how you are now. Um, okay. Just to end the show. While my life has been changing a lot in in Cambridge, I've got lots of friends and I can. I'm studying now. Um, uh, my life in Cambridge is like amazing, yeah, and a really nice place to stay. People really nice here, and yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for us. Yes. You've been listening to Switchboard, and we'll be back same time next week.